Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're listening. We've got Jeff Moyer, CEO at Rodale Institute, joining us on the podcast. And there's a little something for everyone today. You know, one of the really cool things about being able to sit down and visit with our guests is how we get to dig into the story behind the stories and learn where great ideas come from. And some of them just might surprise you. As many of you know, Jeff is a world-renowned authority in organic agriculture. His expertise includes organic crop production systems with a focus on weed management, cover crops, crop rotations, equipment modification use, and facilities design. But Jeff is also probably best known for conceptualizing and popularizing the no-till roller crimper. And on this podcast, we get to hear the backstory. And trust me, it's a fun one. And that's just a small sample of what we discussed today. So let's jump right in. Well, Jeff, I welcome you to the Ag Emerge podcast today. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to share with us a little bit about yourself and Rodale Institute and all the wonderful things you've got going on there. And what we like to do with our guests is just uh, ask you to start out. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, your mission, your why, and uh, bring everybody up to speed. Well, sure, I can try to do that. I, I don't know how exciting my my history or my path is to your to your listeners uh but it is my my path um getting out of uh, I, well, i'm gonna go all the way back to high school you know when i got out of high school my interest was really in uh, not in agriculture i grew up on a small farm and uh pretty much hated the work and uh as it was, seemed like endless work and uh our our small farm had a, a very nice uh, woodlot i tended to spend much more time in the forest and so when i got out of school i went to forestry school and uh, wanted to work in uh, in the forestry field. When I got out of college, my girlfriend at the time was in Pennsylvania. The only work I could find in forestry was in Colorado. And she said, uh, well, in- enjoy your life in the West. And I didn't really want to give up on her. Uh, and-, and I think it all worked out well because we've been married uh, for like, like 43 years now. So that, that kind of worked out all right. Um, but in so doing, I shifted gears and I ended up getting a job at this uh, place called Rodale Institute. And, um, you know, it's just been a, one wild ride after another and uh, been here ever since. In the process, uh, my wife and I bought a small piece of land. This was the uh, mid-1970s and part of the back to the land movement as the counterculture left the urban areas, uh, you may recall the they call the hippie counterculture of the 60s and early 70s was sort of leaving urban areas getting pushed out and everybody was going to the farm and so we bought a piece of land and we still live there build our own house you know it was it was it was the 70s and uh yeah it's 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 worked out well so we have an organic farm at home my son actually uh, has grown that farm tremendously and runs that now as a certified organic dairy operation and that's his full-time career and then he him and his family live and work there. Uh, the farm I live on, we still have our the heifers live on our farm and the milk cows live on his farm. And it's, it's just been a great life and um, been a fantastic opportunity to be involved in, in organic agriculture. So you, you wanted to run as far away from farming as you could to the forest and they just keep pulling you back. You see how this works? Yeah. You know, I tell everybody, uh, you know, and I saw the same thing with my children. I don't know if you have or your listeners have, but my son, when he graduated from school, said, I'm never leaving Berks County, Pennsylvania. I love it here. He went to school in uh, Laramie, Wyoming, at the University of Wyoming. Uh, my daughter said, I can't wait to get out of here. She went the, less than an hour away. And so you just never know. Whatever it is you say you hate, that's what you will do. <laughs> Be careful what you say. Works. That's right. And, uh, you know, and I, the... The, everybody thinks hate and love are opposite ends of the spectrum, and they're really close together in the middle. And uh, my uh, hatred of farm work turned into love very quickly. 
Well, good. We're, we're glad that you, that you did that U-turn and thankful for your wife and, uh, making you, uh, come back to Pennsylvania. So that, that worked out great or your future wife at that time. It did uh, work out great. <laughs> so, um, Rodale Institute got started there and, and with your own farm too, at the same time, tell us a little bit about your journey with, with Rodale and, and some of the things over your tenure there. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I started out in, uh, in our farm operations team and became farm manager and then farm director and then executive director, now CEO. So it's been a, it's been a great opportunity to participate in the organic community, in the regenerative organic community and, and watch that community grow and mature. Uh, been able to be involved uh, at a lot of different levels on a lot of different boards, served on the National Organic Standards Board in Washington, D.C., uh, was able to help create some other nonprofits along the way. Uh, there's a small nonprofit uh, located in uh, Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, that my wife and I helped start called The Seed Farm. I was a founding board member for Pennsylvania Certified Organic, which is a, a certificate, nonprofit certifying agency. And then uh, just in the last uh, five years, uh, helped to start the, uh, the Organic Farmers Association, which uh, the Institute has spun off in January of this year, and it's now a separate nonprofit. So I've been involved in the nonprofit world my whole, uh, my entire career, and always centered around the idea of agriculture and regenerative agriculture. Oh, and was a co-founder, uh, along with Patagonia and Bronner's, of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is the nonprofit that holds the Regenerative Organic Certification, which I helped build. So had the opportunity to build a lot of wonderful and amazing tools and also did my own work in organic no-till, working on research here at the Institute because we are a research and education facility. Um, and we do have a farm. We're much bigger. The Institute is much larger than the farm, but we, ha we have this farm. We actually have uh, seven locations around the country now that we do our research and education on. So we have facilities in uh, Georgia. We have a facility in California one in Iowa, and we're doing some work on several locations here in the state of Pennsylvania. And don't forget, uh, for, for our farmer listeners out there who, who are in love with iron, uh, we're talking to the father of the uh, roller crimper, her grandfather or, or inventor of the roller crimper. So, well, yeah, I guess all of the yeah, father and grandfather, and uh, there's so many people have taken it and uh, the idea and the concept and carried it uh, farther, faster, and that's really what it's all about. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's been a real uh, pleasure of mine to to be able to work on that technology. Uh, and, and, and that's a story. That's a story in and of itself. Yeah, and, it, and it's fun to see it getting adopted as sixty foot bars on a regular basis. A couple new manufacturers this year, and uh, so it, it's it's fascinating to see that that taking off and and starting to scale. Yeah, um, and not, not just in, not just in this country, but uh, around the world. You know, there's really been global adoption of that. And I would say there's probably as many uh, conventional farms using the technology as organic farms now. It's really crossover technology that's uh, facilitated farmers to uh, who adopt it to reduce their their pesticide expenses, their herbicide costs. So that's great. Yeah, because even in a conventional farm setting, uh, you're greatly reducing the total amount of uh, herbicides that are put out there because uh, we're using a, I like to say on our farm, uh, we use cover crops. I, I plant the weeds I want. Otherwise yeah. nature sends me the weeds I don't want. So it's easier to control the weeds that I want. So we, we do that and roller crimp and, and it, and it dramatically reduces. It probably takes our conventional chemistry application to a third. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I, mean, I, I believe that's, that's what I've been hearing. For, I, I'm not a conventional farmer, but that's what I've been sure. hearing from uh, my conventional friends uh, that they were able to reduce their herbicide costs, uh, at least in half, sometimes, like you said, uh, a third and uh, hey, that's money in their pocket. Yeah. And it's less impact on the soil <laughs> and the soil system. And if we can get, you know, getting that adopted on 150 million acres in the next five years, is not out of the question. I mean, that's, oh, that's I, I, it's ready I, to go. It is. It's ready to go. Technology works hand in glove with, with cover crops. And really all we're doing is you're, you're a lot of farmers are planting cover crops already. We're just allowing them to grow to maturity instead of terminating them early with, with an herbicide and then right. use the roller crimper, which is a tool that, uh, you know, there is a one-time cost for it, but you know, it, 
I always say it's simple technology it would have to be if I if I had a hand in creating it. Uh, there's there's no engine, there's no hydraulics, there's only you know a few moving parts. It almost never wears out. Um, Just add water. To, if you have to have fill, if you happen to fill it with water and don't drain it in the winter, you live in a northern climate. Uh, you can uh, break it. Yeah, but that's about the only way. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us how how did you uh, inspiration for it? How did it come about years ago when you were building that? I'm sure there was one of those points of frustration, like gosh, this could be better. Well, there was a whole bunch of things that that came into it. You know, I was giving a, a lecture at a uh, at the University of Maryland. Uh, I remember it well. And there was a few farmers that were sitting in the room and they were large scale uh, producers and they were very polite and listened to my presentation. And then they sort of leaned back sitting up against the wall in the back of the room. And one person put up his hand and waved his hand. I called on him for his question. He said, you know, the problem we have is he said the, the four of us sitting here, I forget how many thousands of acres he said they, they managed. And he said, in everything you're talking about transitioning to organic involves tillage. We don't have enough hours in the day uh, to till all this land. There's no way we could do it. So apparently we can't be organic. And it really, it really struck a chord with me that, uh, that uh, they made sense and we had to have a way of reducing tillage. And then I was talking with another friend uh, at the university of Connecticut. And he said, you know, you guys in regenerative organic world, constantly talk about soil health soil health soil health and then you plow it what's what what part of plowing improves soil health you know and so all these things were gelling in my mind and yes uh, we do understand that in the, um, in the in an alternative system like organic or regenerative organic and where we're not using herbicides we have to do something to manage weeds and that does generally involve uh, some tillage we really believe that we're putting uh, enough money in the uh, savings account that we can take a little bit out of checking by doing some tillage. Uh, we don't like to do that, but how do we? And, and you're the talking tillage? about the carbon or the soil health uh, savings that's right. account. Yeah, that's right. In, yeah. In, the, in the soil saving account, we're 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 putting a lot into that bank account, and when we till the soil, we're taking some out. Uh, but if I put $100 in and take 10 out, I'll do that all day, every day, uh, with money or with carbon. What we don't want to do is, uh, you know, put in almost nothing and 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 take out a hundred. I mean, you can only do that for so long, and unfortunately, that's what we've done across the country and around the globe uh, for far too long, and our and degraded our our soils. It's so I'm sure looking at those, you know, that's how that works, Jeff. They can just take out and print stuff, but we can't do that as farmers. It's funny. We yeah, we can't do that as farmers. We can't do that as private individuals. It doesn't work that way. So these ideas were rattling around in my head. Uh, at the same time, I was doing uh, some work with one of our research scientists here as part of our uh, management of our, of our farm. And I, I remember the field. I remember the research plots. Uh, there was, it was all tilled and there was cover crops there. And there was, a, there was probably a uh, hundred different research plots in this observational trial that this scientist was put in place. And in the process of doing the tillage and getting these crops established that we were planting corn in, in the field, I left the ends of the field, happened to be in hairy vetch as one of the cover crops. I just planted the ends of the fields. I left those ends untilled. And in planting research plots, anybody that's ever done any research works know there's a lot of alleyways, roadways, and you're driving on the ends all the time. And so I drove all over the ends of the field and it was easier just to drag the planter through the plots and then pick it up. And so I planted the ends of the field. It was just easier. One of my neighbors stopped by and he said, came into my office and he said, you guys, you, you, you claim to be organic and then you spray herbicides. I said, Kyle, we don't spray herbicides. What are you talking about? He said, you come up to this field and you tell me that you didn't spray herbicide on that went up to the field and here, uh, I couldn't tell you what happened in the hundred research plots because I don't know what happened there. But the ends of the field was this mat of dead mulch where we had driven all over this hairy vetch with these beautiful little corn plants coming out through the slot that the planter made. And it, it, was a, uh, it wasn't even a no-till planter. It was just a planter, but it cut through the vetch just enough that it got seeds in the ground we both stood and looked at it and I said, I didn't spray herbicide there. And he said, that is amazing. 
And so I spent the next uh, five or six years trying to uh, duplicate my mistake and uh, make it so I could replicate it. Mm-hmm. And played around with that for a bunch of times until it dawned on me that, uh, you know, it, you can't really tell farmers to just drive all over their fields because your neighbors will think they're drunk or an idiot or something, just driving a tractor around the field, pulling nothing. And so I had to invent something to pull. And we tried, I tried in that uh, five or six year period, I tried using some off the shelf tools that already existed, everything from uh, mowers to um, cultivators packers and, and, and roller wheels and nothing seemed to work. You know, it's a little bit like those, um, uh swiss army tools that you might get from somebody at christmas you know we all throw them in our toolbox or the glove compartment of the car uh, they say it's uh, one tool does everything and it's really one tool does nothing uh you know in an emergency it's better than nothing but usually not much you usually pinch your finger or cut yourself with it trying to use it um so we were using the wrong tools for the job and none of it was working. I said, we have to invent a tool that's going to do what it is we want it to do. And my thought was, I want to put the tool on the front of the tractor. So, you know, when you're, when you're making hay, you don't drive over the hay and then pull the hay behind behind you. You set it off to the side or, or if it's self-propelled, you know, you, you don't drive on it first, your head's in the front. And so I wanted the first thing to be able to touch the cover crop to be a, a, a tool, whatever that was going to be. And we came up with a roller crimper and, uh, the rest is sort of history. You know, I worked with my neighbor, uh, who is a good welder, uh, John Brubaker, a Mennonite farmer nearby, who uh, had a much better weld shop than I did and was a great fabricator of likes and always enjoyed bending metal and shaping metal. And we literally, uh, because they're Mennonites and they use bicycles for transportation, there was a bunch of bicycle wheels laying around. And so we just kept picking up bicycle wheels and holding them in the front of the tractor to try to figure out what looked to be about the right size. And, you know, if it was too small, it looked like you were pushing a toy. If it was too big, it was like, well, and then it looks like a, you know, an old fashioned steamroller. Uh, we don't want that. You know, it's not construction equipment. We're not packing asphalt. So uh, we came up with a, um, a tool that's around 24 inches in diameter. You know, we went to, or I think it was a 26 inch wheel and said, well, that looks about right. Went to the salvage yard. We found some 16 inch um, well casing seemed to be about sturdy enough to, to do what we wanted to do. So 16 inch cylinder is what most roller crimpers are because that's what we found at the salvage yard. They had some pre-cut four inch strips there. We said, boy, that looks about the right size for a blade. We didn't want it too short. We didn't want it too long. Four inches was there. And so we welded them on and rest, you know, made sense to us. Sounds like a intense uh, CAD software was deployed and uh, you know, engineering and, and test labs. And no, well, I love it. That's, that is an awesome, awesome story. Uh, well, we knew I, that if we, that. you know, we stood there looking at it and I said, well, you know, if we put the blades and we make the, you know, we roll a cylinder, put the blades across there, it's going to bounce. Mm-hmm. Cause you're going to have a blade on the ground and a blade in the air and it's, it's just going to bounce. I said, well, I don't want it to bounce. And so I uh, happened to be watching my wife, roll out some pastry and if you look at a uh, pasta cutter it's it's a spiral and that's so the rolling pin doesn't bounce across the cutting board it just kind of rolls and the strips come out in ribbons but it cuts them like you know on an annual angle but when you pull them up they look like noodles you know like ribbons and i'm like that's what i want but then in talking with my neighbor i said you know if we if we do that, if we take that roller and sort of like twist it, and then we make a spiral, we basically created a screw. It's a screw. And if you put it on the front of the tractor, if you know, we farm on hills here in Pennsylvania, yeah, if you're screwing yourself uphill, it's okay. But if you're screwing yourself downhill, it's not going to be a, you know, you're not going to hold it in place. So we were sitting there thinking about, well, how do we neutralize that screw impact? And I happened to be leaning on a New Holland haybine. And if you an old uh, pull type haybine that has yep. the crushers, if you look at those crushers, they, they're, spir- they're chevron shaped. Mm-hmm. And so I was leaning on it, looking at him, just like I'm looking at you. And it was behind me. And he said, why don't you make them like that? I said, make them like what? He goes like that. And, and he pointed at the rollers. And I looked and I go, hey, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Let's just do that. And so if you look at the spiral on a roller crimper, the way I, we've designed it, it's the exact pattern of a New Holland uh, haybine crimper. So 
it worked and away we went. <laughs> wow. What a story. So by accidentally driving over the end rows too much, you discovered, uh, something that, uh, if you wouldn't pay attention or be out in the field, you never would have noticed. And thankfully neighbor pointed out. Then we, uh, we take bicycle tires to determine the size. We get some old steel casing, uh, 16 inch happened to be there with four inch strips and mm -hmm. look at a new Holland hay bind or the wife's pasta cutter and yep. a new Holland bay hay bind. So we don't sidetrack. And that invented the roller crimper, all of those metal mending of ideas. Well, um, yeah, what a story. I'm, I'm pretty certain God had a hand in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, I'm not that clever. So. Yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I say the same thing. I'm not that good. Uh, you just, just happen to open your eyes and pay attention and, and uh, he'll show you what you need to see. Well, and, and knowing that we wanted to, you know, if you, the other piece that fit into this puzzle was, um, you know, as I was thinking about how do we reduce tillage, uh, we played around with some ideas of mulching, you know, because if you, if you talk to, to gardeners, whether you're a conventional or organic gardener, most, a lot of gardeners, I wouldn't say most, but I think most, but a lot anyway, use mulch, you know, whether it's grass clippings, newspaper, cardboard, you know, carpet squares, you lay it out there on the ground, it stops annual weeds from growing. So we've got these little pieces of biological knowledge that were floating around in my head at the same time, uh, along with seeing what we did, you know, in that accidental edge of the field, end of the field where we created that mulch in, you know, in situ, right in the field. Um, and so we thought, well, if, if we can, if we can ask farmers to grow the mulch as a cover crop right in place, create enough biomass to suppress annual weeds and then use modern no-till planter technology, you know, we're, a lot of people think that organic is anti-technology and that's just not true. We're really early adopters of technology. We'll use satellite guidance systems. We'll use robotics. We'll use any of those tools that don't negatively impact our personal health or the health of the soil or the planet. Uh, so we do stay away from it. And uh, I think that's a, that's something I think most farmers can understand. You know, most farmers don't spray Roundup with the goal of making people healthy. That's not why you do it. And so from the organic perspective, we say, well, if it doesn't make people healthy or it doesn't improve soil health, why would we use that tool? Uh, but cover crops and, and modern, modern no-till planter technology just seem to go hand in glove. We just needed a little bit of steering there with the roller crimper to make it work. Yeah. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So, I mean, necessity is the mother of invention and uh, you've got that tool in the toolbox now. And now all of a sudden you've got that uh, enabled to allow you to enable organic no-till. And, and really, like you're alluding to in the last five years, the planter technology that's come from Dawn and Precision Planning and others has really allowed us to do some amazing things that we couldn't before in, in cover crops. And, and we, on the conventional side, will we do a lot of things with upfront planter nutrition. Uh, mm -hmm. From a conventional standpoint, you can always do that with organic <coughs> nutritionals too, to sure. kind of overcome that uh, nutrient cycling change that we're inducing by no-till and by cover crop. We're, we're changing that uh, soil biology nutrient cycling speed without the tillage. But talk to us a little bit, uh, since you wrote the book on it, literally, uh, organic no-till, uh, those two words just don't seem like they should be in the same sentence. Um, and, but like you said, there's, there's real opportunities today with technology to make organic no-till work. And I visited with one of your staff members on our farm about, we're looking at making that transition to organic no-till in an HEL context. Uh, it's pretty much required. So um, dive in a little bit on organic no-till and, and kind of how that came about and, and how successful that is for, for farmers that are adopting it today. Yeah, we, we, we deliberately, uh, you just said those two words don't seem to go together, but we deliberately put them together to attract people's attention. Uh, we wanted to attract the attention of organic farmers, but we also wanted to attract the attention of 
uh, conventional farmers as well. We, you know, uh, part of our goal is to reduce tillage on organic farms and reduce herbicides on uh, conventional farms. And I, I think we've accomplished those goals. If you, um, you know, if you talk to conventional farmers uh, across the country, they will almost all say, well, we have to use herbicides. You know, we, we, we're, we're conservation farmers. We do not want to till the soil. If you don't till the soil, we got to manage weeds. And so that means you got to use herbicides. If you talk to organic farmers, they say, we can't use herbicides. Uh, we still have to manage weeds. So we're going to till the soil. And to me, there seemed to be that there had to be a third way. And maybe there's a fourth or a fifth. I don't know. But to me, there at least had to be a third way that says, you know, I, I want to reduce tillage and I want to eliminate or reduce herbicides um, in both camps. There's got to be a way for it to help us manage our soils so that uh, we don't have uh, excessive weed pressure. How do we do that? And that's why we, we're focusing on this. And I think that's why, quite frankly, why the technology has grown in acceptance you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, nobody even heard of it. And now I would say that those of your listeners that are farmers, um, most farmers have heard of the technology. They may like it or not like it. They may have tried it or not tried it. That, or they know somebody who tried it and didn't like it or tried it and did like it. Uh, but most people have, when you've mentioned roller crimp, they go, oh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. So it's getting into people's lexicon and into their minds. And it, it's kind of fun because I've been able to travel around the world talking about uh, the work that, that I do here at Rodale. And uh, I can remember I was in uh, Germany giving a, a, a talk and somebody said, yeah, you know, it works in the United States, but it'll never work in Germany. And then some farmer in the back of the room said, well, I went to Rodale Institute, saw what they were doing, brought that technology back, you know, in, in my head. And we, we made the plans available. So the plans for our roller, if somebody wants to build one, are available on our website uh, for free. You can just go ahead and build one. He said, I built one and I do it. And so everybody suddenly like turned around and stopped looking at me and rightly so and looked up the, the, uh, the lecture hall to the farmer and said, oh, tell us what you're doing and how are you doing it? And so a lot of people say, well, it won't work here. Uh, I hear that in the uh, sometimes in the West, people say, oh, it's too dry to plant cover crops here. And then someone inevitably will be in the room and put up their hand and they'll say, it's too dry not to plant cover crops. Planting cover crops helps me manage water. Yes, I have to buy water in the form of irrigation, but I can stockpile water in uh, cover crops. Anybody who's ever seen a standing field of uh, forage peas or field peas, Austrian winter peas, Peas are nothing but three feet of water standing above the ground. If you grab them and squeeze them, you can literally squeeze the juice and the water right out of it. So you've captured all that water, you've held it, and now you can put it back and release it into the soil when you terminate it with a, uh, a roller crimper. It doesn't uh, translocate into the atmosphere. It actually gets absorbed by the soil. So we can manage moisture with cover crops. So uh, I, had a, was at a, um, I was a guest to speak in Norway. They said it's too cold in Norway. I said, oh, well, they're doing it in Manitoba, Canada. It's pretty cold up there, too. And they said, oh, really? And so you put those farmers in connection with the farmers in Norway. Now, Norway, uh, Norwegian farmers are using a roller crimper. I was in uh, Argentina on a farm down there, a fairly large farm of 34,000 acres. And when I got there, <clears throat> excuse me, to talk about roller crimper with, with farmers there, um, prior to me getting there, they had days and days of rain. I drove for six hours in a pickup truck and I didn't see any dry land. Everything was underwater. There was probably six inches to a foot of water standing on every field that we passed. When we got to the farm with the rye cover crop, uh, my, uh, my host said, I brought boots along for you because I know you're going to want to get out and see the soil. And, you know, unfortunately, we've, we've just had this torrential flooding. When we got out of the truck, at that farm, I walked out with my regular leather work boots. We walked onto the field and we planted soybeans that day. He said, my neighbors won't plant for days, maybe weeks until this dries out and so the water runs off. Uh, he said, I wonder where all that water went because it didn't, it, it was a 400 acre field. He said it rained on this field like everybody else's. We took a shovel and we dug down two feet as, far as much as we could dig quickly with a, a hand spade. And 
it was moist the whole way down and it was roots. And we put the roller on the front of his tractor and the planter on the back. And we planted 400 acres of soybeans that day uh, where everybody else was paddling a canoe through their field, literally uh, paddling <laughs> canoes in their fields. Well, when you change one thing, you change everything and uh, cover crops uh, change water cycling. And I, I, we work with a lot of people in the Western United States and I hear that, well, we're wasting water with cover crops. And uh, I've done some work with researchers and uh, Jeff Mitchell has a big uh, test plot out there that he has historical data for a long period of time. I asked him just to go back through the neutron probes and essentially their data points were he used 2.4 inches to grow the cover crop yep. and he saved 2.1 inches within season mm -hmm. to, uh, That's in great. evaporation. So you're almost a one for one, you know, depending on your management, you can't let it turn into a jungle. You can't, right. you got to plant the right crops, those kind of things, but that can be done because you reduce all the surface evaporation. And like you said, when you do get a rain, it goes into the soil instead of off the soil. So yeah, you uh, capture every drop. I, and I've worked with Jeff Mitchell and uh, Jeff's used some of our roller technology. I don't think he's yep. doing it at the moment, but um, yeah, I, I think what in talking to some of the farmers in the West, uh, particularly if you're buying water, you may change when you buy water and how you're buying water. Mm -hmm. Yes, you buy water for your cover crop, but then your cash crop takes less. So, you know, when you're budgeting your water, you got to think about things yeah. differently. And that, that's, that's true. And then the other thing is too, especially for those situations, water availability, uh, it, you know, you just spend two inches to get it growing, but then you can grow it on winter rains, which typically, um, you know, they have in California, but, Mm -hmm. um, then you're banking that water, if you will, like you said, for the right. peak season use, which is going to get, be cut in half here in the next year or so. So it's well, and even working with some rice growers, you know, um, that, that are flooding their fields. What they're finding is with with duckweed, they're having to flood the fields deeper than they used to because the duckweed is actually mutating and is getting taller. So they said we actually need more acre feet of water to grow rice. But. If we drain those patties and use cover crops and improve the weed management with cover crops, we don't need as much water to flood the field. Now, I understand some of those uh, water rights are ancient and they can get as much water as they want, but why waste it if we don't have to, um, to flood those fields uh, two inches deeper than you had to 20 years ago just to manage the same weed? I mean, how deep are you going to flood it? You, so they're constantly building up their dikes to get that water level up. And, you know, the weeds are going to mutate around that. They're not, they have nothing else to do. And that's what they're going to do. So in 20 years, are you going to have to flood them two more inches uh, yep. as warmer water gets more scarce? Where I think stepping back and saying, how do we manage the soil to improve our weed management strategy at literally at the ground level so that we don't need that? So I think there's a lot of opportunities that the roller does for us that uh, it's not it doesn't solve everybody's problem. And I don't want to infer that it does. Uh, but it is another tool that farmers can put in their toolbox that um, even on organic farms, we have, uh, and some of our conventional farmers, particularly with something like sweet corn that you plant in succession, uh, farmers will start out tilling the soil because it's cold and their cover crop isn't mature. And then as their planting season moves along, they start, they turn into roller crimpers. It, it's, it's not a... We can wear multiple hats. We can walk and chew gum at the same time as farmers. We don't have to say, well, I'm a strict no-tiller and I will never till the soil. There might be a time when a little tillage makes sense. Uh, we don't want to be strict tillers and say, I just till the soil. I don't care about soil health. I mean, that's ridiculous. So I've, I've never met a farmer in the, and I've been blessed and, and able to travel all over the world. Never met a farmer that got up in the morning and said, my goal is to make people sick and destroy the health of the soil. That's not what they do. Mm -hmm. And so if we can give them the tools and the technology and the knowledge to improve the health of the soil and get a, a quality crop to market at a reasonable cost, we're going to keep doing it. And I think part of it's how, as farmers, we identify ourselves. You know, sometimes um, we've gotten to where we identify ourselves as by the crop that we grow. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a corn farmer, I'm a wheat farmer, I'm a tomato farmer, that kind of thing. And no, we're farmers. And I think, you know, the complexity um, increases, uh, in planning and, and thinking through, you know, it's not, 
if you transition organic no-till, you're not going to be a corn bean, corn bean, corn bean, uh, conventional farmer that, that, that don't work. Uh, you, you have to introduce other crops. You need to look at grazing animals. You need to extend those rotations in order to, to grow those crops. And, uh, I think one of the challenges to overcome is conventional farming is, uh, I don't want to offend anybody by saying it this way, but it's easy. Okay. If you have a problem, there's a, there's a jug for that, or, uh, you kind of do the same thing over and over. You create these recipes for, you know, large farmers that do 25,000 acres this way. You know, we're going to go run the vertical till machine. We're going to plant and we're just going to, we got this herbicide program and that's what we do everywhere. Where I think when you're looking at organic no-till, it requires a lot more planning, thinking, uh, boots on the ground and adapting to the context of that individual field much more. Um, I, how do you, what have you found great ways to help guys to where, where is the pain and convenience and the, the, I think there's a knowledge gap. If farmers really knew, because we're being told that everything we're doing is sustainable and great by the chem companies. Right. So, but at the same time, there's a, there's a pain to change because we don't know it's uncomfortable, but there's, I don't think there's a pain of the knowledge of what we're doing maybe isn't as great as what we're being told it is. How, how do you, so how do you change that mindset is what I'm, I'm rambling on about here, uh, Jeff, how do you, how do you get enough to where the pain of what we're doing is greater than the pain of making a change? Yeah, well, you brought up a whole bunch of things there, uh, you know, especially when you were saying that farmers identify themselves as a particular crop grower. And I, I would uh, suggest that every one of us that farms should start thinking of ourselves as soil microbe farmers. We're all livestock farmers. And the microbial life in the soil is what we should be focusing on. And what tools can we implement and what systems and what rotations can we implement on our farms that are gonna improve that microbial life in the soil? Because that's where the carbon currency gets exchanged. That's where the, the uh, soil crop interface takes place. It's all with that microbial life. So that's what connects us together. Whether we're growing tomatoes or corn or soybeans or, or pomegranates, we, we, we are all soil managers and managing for microbial life. And if we can think about that, that then it sort of changes the structure of, of what we're focusing on. And you, know, you mentioned the word recipe, and I, I think that's what's made, what's made uh, chemical intensive agriculture so uh, uh, rapidly adopted across the, the planet. It's not that uh, anybody who's taken a chemistry course in, in, at a university or a college will attest to the fact that chemistry is not easy but what it is, is predictable. If I take two chemicals and I mix them together here at my desk where I'm sitting and you mix them together at your desk and a farmer mixes them together in his uh, farm office or kitchen table, you're gonna get a reaction. I'm gonna get the same reaction you get. I'm gonna get it the same reaction today and tomorrow. I get it in Brazil, I get it anywhere. That predictability and that uh, ease of creating a recipe uh, is what farmers have grown to like. On the other hand, biology is a legitimate science. You can go to any university and get a degree in biology, but it's a very messy science. You eat pepperoni pizza today, you feel great. You eat it tomorrow, you get a heartburn. Why? That's biology. I don't know. Uh, you know, what I did today did, works great. When I do it tomorrow, it didn't work great. Uh, the weather patterns different, different vectors. Biology is a messy science, but it's within that messiness that we're able to improve the biodiversity of the soil to improve that microbial life. And we believe, and, and our data proves it and our research, that we can, if we manage it well, uh, increase the predictability across weather patterns. So it, it reduces it, you know, it, it, I know it's sacrilege when I say, you know, it reduces your need for crop insurance, but it does. You know, it, we, the, the system becomes much more predictable and it's in its in its messiness and its unpredictability, it becomes predictable. Uh, so you can you can think about that. But there is uh, there's a lot of thought that has to go into it. And I'm, I would never suggest uh, and I don't want to offend anybody by saying that conventional farmers don't think because they do. But a lot of that thought process that went into the system was done off site 
by the chemical company. They've got world-class chemists that work on those things day in and day out. Uh, and so there's a lot of work goes into it. But then once it gets to the farm, it's relatively uh, straightforward. You know, you get a sheet of paper with the mixing rates on it, and you put it in your tanks and you go out and you spray it. Uh, and if it doesn't work, uh, as long as you did everything according to the book, you call crop insurance and they come out and the adjuster helps you out of your out of your fix. In organic systems and regenerative organic systems, it's a little bit different. And there is, I don't want to say there's pain, you know, because uh, it's not really painful. Many of the farmers that I speak with, and I would say most, have said that farming actually becomes interesting again. It's exciting. I'm learning new things. Yes, if you're, um, I, 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 I think that conventional agriculture has allowed some poor managers to stay in business. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, I think that there are a lot of bright, exciting uh, young farmers that are coming into the ag or, uh, or community that want to try new things and do different things and be really thought provocative, not just step in line, get get on with a recipe and do what the recipe tells them to, to do. Um, and then take what you get at the end. Uh, they want to be more involved in the decision-making process and using cover crops, diversifying your crop rotation uh, allows you to do that. You mentioned bringing animals on board. The more complex you make the system, the more stable it gets. Uh, I don't want to eat the same thing all day, every day. My health would go down. Uh, even if I just ate organic carrots, if all you did was sit here and ate organic carrots, I would become unhealthy. We need diversity in our lives. We need diversity in the soil. We need diversity in our activities. As farmers, you know, I, uh, I got a friend here that farms uh, 3,000 acres of conventional no-till corn every year. And um, he's just a few years older than me, went to high school with my sister. I know him real well. And we joke all the time because, I, you know, I'll say, Dan, I don't know how you get up in the morning. <laughs> I mean, you're going to do this year the same thing you did 20 years ago. You know, it's, it, it, I don't get it. Uh, and, we, and we joke about that. He said, yeah, what you do is just too, too messy. And I could farm... I can farm so much faster with what I do. And it's like, yeah, but my goal isn't to do it faster. It's to do it better. And it's to improve the health of the soil and bring a product to the market that the marketplace rewards me for. And uh, so we both, we both make a living, uh, you know, farming. We just do it differently and, and, uh, and get along well. One of the things you've talked about a little bit, Jeff, is regenerative organic and organic systems. And, you know, through our conversation here, you've had, you've differentiated between those two and, yeah. I, uh, I want to dive into that a little bit. And uh, you may know Tom Willie from uh, Madera, California. Mm -hmm. He is a pioneer in that area in the 70s uh, in organic before organic was even a, a, a label, you know, or even maybe had the word for it. And I really think at that time, you know, the spirit of organic really was regenerative. You know, that, that word wasn't out there either. We kind of started as regenerative organic and and, and this, is, this is my opinion, I, I feel over time, it kind of devolved into a list of, uh, you know, the USDA list of organically approved inputs. So it became mm -hmm. conventional farming, but organic inputs. And they, they yep. kind of missed the, the holistic nature of organic. And I guess what I see is the regenerative organic uh, movement that's underfoot that uh, you're certainly leading the charge on, or part of the group that's leading the charge on, is really bringing us back to where we were, uh, what's old is new again, you know, kind of the spirit of the holistic management, um, part of it, uh, talk to us about the differences in, in that you see, uh, regenerative organic versus organic. Uh, what, what is that all about and where are you headed and why is this important? Well, we, we all know there's power in words. Uh, GI Rodale, the founder of the Rodale Institute, was the first person to put the word organic in front of agriculture and, and created the modern organic agricultural movement in, that's in the United States. And he did that back in 1942, as he was looking for a way to uh, think about and, and discuss a production system that di didn't rely on heavily on external inputs. And he was not a farmer. He was a businessman, uh, made his money in uh, electrical switchgear businesses, a whole different thing, and then got involved in publishing uh, because he thought, well, you know, if I'm trying this idea, maybe some other people would like this idea. And the organic uh, movement 
cut hold in some places and bits and pieces. I would say that the counterculture of the 50s and 60s really embraced this whole idea of organic agriculture. And you're right. It had this connotation of regenerative and organic all in, in one space, but that word regenerative wasn't used in, uh, in the context of, of that conversation. But by the time we got to the late 1970s, uh, there were folks who were uh, sounding sort of the early warning bell of, of climate change and what was happening with our climate said, wait a minute, we're putting too much carbon into the atmosphere. They were talking about that back in the late 70s, early 80s. And Robert Rodell, J.R. Rodell's son, was an early uh, proponent of this conversation around climate change. He was a little frustrated with the word sustainable and sustainability. Uh, he felt that that was a weak word. And I've got a friend, I've told this story many times, maybe your listeners, if they've heard me talk, they may have heard me say this. I've got a friend who's a journalist, uh, Greg Bowman, who asked me one time, he said, if somebody asked you how your relationship was with your significant other and you said sustainable, uh, yeah, you're smiling. Everybody chuckles when you say that. Would people be happy or sad for you? Uh, so it's a relatively weak word. And unfortunately, the word sustainable got picked up by marketers in food products and fiber products, and everything is sustainably produced uh, to the point where the word sustainable means everything and it means nothing at the same time. It's but, like new and improved and light. There's no standard for it. It just. But it's not. I mean, sustainable, if you really looked at the word, wouldn't that say that you can keep doing what you're doing now to infinity? Yes, but it's saying right. you can do what you can do now to infinity with a huge influx of imported inputs. Yeah, but I, I still don't agree that we could keep tilling and, and, and putting out uh, chemistries and everything we're doing today for a thousand years. No way. No, I, I think most people don't believe that. So it's not really sustainable. So what we so said is the beginning you know, of the greenwashing revolution, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't ultimately we don't want to sustain what we have. We want to improve it. Correct. I don't want to just I don't want to just sustain my life or my farm at home. I want it to improve. And so Robert Rodell was fishing around for a word and he came up with the word regenerative. We want to regenerate our soil. If we can regenerate the health of our soil, we can regenerate uh, farms. If we can regenerate a farm, we regenerate the spirit of a farmer. If we can regenerate a spirit of a farm, we can regenerate whole communities. Uh, everything can get better if we focus on the soil. And that's what Robert Rodell was talking about with regeneration. And so um, jump forward, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, and we're seeing those people who are marketing the word sustainable looking for another word. New and improved, you know, you can only do that so many times and then they go, uh, it seems like the same old stuff. Uh, and so they're looking for another word and they said, how about regenerative? Let's use regenerative. And so we saw people here at Rodeo, we looked around and we could see people starting to use the word regenerative and linking it to the status quo. And so they're just taking the word sustainable, throwing it away, putting the word regenerative there and going, ah, we are regenerative. We're already regenerative. And it's like, no, you're not. You're doing the same thing you were doing yesterday. You're not doing anything to improve the health of your soil. And so uh, we stepped up uh, again, as I mentioned, with some with some leading partners and said, we want to create a standard around the word regenerative and link it to the word organic because we don't you know, that's just our philosophy. We don't believe that you can truly be regenerative if you're not already organic or having organic uh, production systems in place. Uh, you can do those, you can transition simultaneously. It's not one and then the other. So you can do this simultaneously, but it's a little bit like saying, I want to be an athlete. I want to go to the Olympics, but I'm not going to give up smoking two packs a day. Well, you can say you're an athlete, but I can say I'm an athlete. I'm not. And anybody that would see me would know that I'm not. Uh, that's not, you know, and if you're smoking and, and, and eating poorly, it doesn't work. So we're saying you can't treat the soil with chemistry and still say you're trying to regenerate the health of it, nor can you continuously till the soil and say that you're regenerative. And so we added a whole bunch of other features to this, uh, to the organic standard that the USDA has. And you're, you're right, the standard has, I don't know if it's degenerated or degraded into a, a system of, of lists that, of what you can and can't do. And, and that's unfortunate, but that's what happens when um, the uh, USDA placed the um, the thing under ag marketing, there's only certain lexicons, the language that they that they have and regulations. And of course, then as the as the industry matures, and we have a community of consumers that want to support that in the marketplace by paying 
uh, a higher price for that. In, you know, and we we always say they're not paying a premium. It's just that conventional food is already discounted because you're not paying the true cost of that food. So when you talk about sustainable systems, you really have to re reinvigorate those cost figures with externalized costs, uh, which are tremendous uh, in order to keep our conventional food system sustainable. We've externalized all the costs because we've made we already talked about making farming easy. Well, we've made it fast and cheap. So if you want easy, fast and cheap, you're going to have pollution, contamination and externalized costs. It's, it's the only way to make food cheap is to externalize the cost. So um, subsidized crop insurance associated with it, too. I mean, that's a that's a tremendous cost associated with our current food system. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to look at that. We're in the organic system. Uh, we tend to internalize all the costs. And then people pay the true cost of that food production at the point of point of purchase. Uh, but the marketplace is supporting that. And we see farmers wanting to, to move in that direction. But those consumers that come to the marketplace typically come with a suite of values, not just one value. So if you're picking up uh, two products in your hand and one is uh, organic, and the other one is uh, fair trade or has social justice issue components around it. Now I have to make a choice. Which one of those issues when I'm buying these tomato pastes is most important to me? We have farmers, uh, one farmer I think said it best when, he, uh, when I was talking with him, he said, I feel like a Boy Scout with a sash full of merit badges because um, I'm organic, I'm halal, I'm fair trade, I'm animal welfare approved, I'm, I got all the packaging to fit all the labels. Yeah, that's what he said. I'm running out of space on my meat. He was harvesting meat and butchering. He said, I don't have room to put all my labels on this thing. And to carry the Boy Scout theme, and I was a terrible Boy Scout. Uh, anybody, anybody of your listeners as a scouter, uh, they know uh, what the, I'm talking about when I say they told me to leave when I was a Weeblo. And, you know, I was like, hey, he's a troublemaker. Get him out. Uh, but when you're a Boy Scout and you get a certain, and I don't even know what it is, but you get a certain number of merit badges and you work hard enough, you get to be an Eagle Scout. Once you're an Eagle Scout, that's the badge you wear. And, you know, here at Rodale Institute, when we uh, uh, advertise for positions and somebody applies for a position, they may be 40 years old and they'll still list on their resume that they're an Eagle Scout because it carries a certain respect uh, across the, the, the globe for the amount of work that it took and the dedication to get that badge. And so the farmer said to me, can't I just have one badge that says everything that's important to you as a consumer, I do it. Uh, I take care of the water. I take care of the area. I improve the health of the soil. I take care of my animals. I take care of my employees. All of that is important to you. It's important to me. And I do all that. And so we created the regenerative organic certification standard that is based on the organic principles, but then adds to it uh, three additional pillars. One, dealing with soil health. So we have a soil health pillar. We have an animal welfare pillar because we know that's important to, uh, to not just to farmers, but to uh, their customers as well. And then we have a social justice pillar because nobody wants to buy a, a certified organic product that they know was uh, produced or harvested by people who somewhere in that uh, supply chain were mistreated. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's excellent. And I like that being the gold standard. It, it's definitely a, a, a step in the right direction. I, I think long-term and it, how you use the suite of values that the consumer has, I think long-term, I almost envision every attribute, you know, being able to be recorded using technology uh, and, and uploaded into a blockchain type format. So there's complete transparency of everything that happened with this particular a food item. And yeah. then uh, uh, going through an interview question error of what's important to a consumer, and it will change over time based on their health status, their financial status there. So as a consumer, I want to spend this many dollars yet, uh, you know, social justice is important to me or soil quality or ecosystem services, whatever. They evaluate that. And then a decision engine of some type can, can automatically uh, query uh, that blockchain and it's delivered to your door. XYZ product that you'd never even known before, but it meets all that criteria that you're looking at. You know, right. I, I think if we could get to that kind of a, a point, uh, that would be awesome. In the meantime, regenerative organic is a great step in the right direction. You know, that, that vision of true, transparent, connected uh, farm to table, it'll take some time to get there. But I think modern technology that's evolving will, will get us there uh, someday, you know. And- yeah, because so much of our product comes 
in, in, in process format. Um, yes, some of us just eat an apple or a carrot or, or a, a, a single all the ingredient ingredients. product. But many of us will eat uh, processed product, you know, I mentioned like, you know, tomato sauce or salsa or, and the ingredients come from all over the place. And you want to have some sort of assurance that even if the, uh, the ingredients came from, um, uh, pick any kind of Turkey or Argentina or Brazil or Japan or Australia, you want to know that those ingredients were produced in a manner that meet your standard as a consumer. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why we created this international standard that, that addresses that. And it was really uh, uh, helped initially pushed by the fiber industry, not just the food industry, uh, because people who are buying organic uh, cotton want to know that that cotton wasn't harvested by uh, teenage girls that were forbidden to go to school uh, because they had to work at picking cotton in the field in Turkey. Uh, and, and there's no place in the organic world to have that conversation around social justice or, or, or farm worker fairness. And that is an interesting thing. Half of the world's cotton is still picked by hand and a majority, if not nearly all of it organic is handpicked. So just because of desiccation and, and those kind of things. So, right. yeah. It's wild. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left here, Jeff. Uh, anything else that uh, you'd like to bring up or something that I uh, uh, missed that we should have discussed here today while we were together? Well, I would mention that the Institute here, uh, while we are a science-based organization and, and education, we are also now in the consultancy world because we recognize that um, farmers face multiple barriers to adoptions of new technology. And one of those barriers is um, access to knowledge. We also know that many farmers get their information either from land-grant universities or from uh, input suppliers. And, uh, and they're, they're, they um, probably don't have a vested interest. <laughs> Sometimes they have a very vested interest. Other times they'll hire uh, consultants who will come out to their farm and do soil testing or, or plant tissue analysis or field scouting, and, and those are all valuable tools. But we wanted to create a consultancy that will help walk a farmer through the process to go from wherever they are to a certified organic or certified regenerative organic farm operation. And there's a lot of uh, unknowns for many conventional farmers in that journey. And so we created a consultancy that will walk them uh, hand in glove. And some uh, some farms uh, that we're working with now, uh, and we just started this uh, activity uh, probably uh, less than 30 months ago. And I think we already have uh, well over 300 farms that are, are work, we're working with and tens of thousands of acres. Um, uh, already in transition and, and we always start with about 10% of a farm. That's our suggestion is start with 10% of your farm. So it represents hundreds of thousands of acres. Um, it's been exciting because it's allowed us to become, become partners with some unlikely, uh, maybe, uh, you know, on the surface, unlikely candidates, but a uh, Cargill, for example, is now one of our primary supporters in our consultancy as they're looking to transition um, tens of thousands of acres from conventional to organic to supply their supply chain. Uh, and they came to us and said, you know, we could use some help to get these farmers onboarded. And so they now, uh, depending on where you are and how you sign up with Cargill, uh, Cargill pays for the consultancy. So it's free to the farmer and the farmer just has to agree to a multi-year contract with Cargill to ship their organic grain once it's certified. You know, it's a three-year process to get your field certified organic That's under uh, and regenerative organic. That's under USDA regulation. And farmers want to know that at the end of that three-year transition period, there is a market for their, for their product. And so by working with Cargill, uh, we have uh, long-term storage, uh, logistics. That's what they do. And so we're working, you have to work with some bigger players if you want to move bigger acreages. And there are uh, the demand in the poultry industry in particular for uh, domestic corn bean product, uh, beans especially, is just astronomical. They can't get enough. It's holding back the industry growth as more and more consumers want organic poultry. Yeah. And in the Midwest type context that having a market for those rotational crops is a key, key, key component 
to make it work or in the organic right. no-till. And that's why working with Cargill, it's been successful because they buy the, the entire rotation. Right. They want the beans. They need the beans. And so they're going to lean on those producers to say, get beans in there as much as you can. But we're going to buy every crop that you produce on your farm and we'll find a home for it. And they're large enough to do that. So it's exciting that it's, uh, that this kind of consultancy relationship with farmers has opened the door to new players uh, that we can participate with to uh, make positive change in the uh, in the ag industry. Well, that's excellent. I do want to give a little shout out to one of your team members. Leah was out at our farm and uh, uh, a couple mm-hmm. times, and uh, she's been a great resource so far. Very thoughtful on the long term uh, planning things out. She's given me a little pushback on the on the no till thing, so I got to change my paradigm a little bit and and be okay with maybe a little tillage as needed. But like you said, uh, what is the what is the least worst thing to do? You know, exactly. is it? Uh, and and honestly, in a in an annual cropping situation anyway, uh, fungal colonies don't develop that great. So, you know, occasional intermittent tillage probably isn't the end of the world. But you know, here I am, one of those guys identifying as a no till farmer. So, sure. I, I, you know, I've got paradigms I got to overcome too. But uh, no, I I think that's a great approach. You've got the great science. You've got the practical experience uh, making it work on piloting on the farms around the country. Now it's a matter of how do we help the farmer? You got to have the pull through a place for with Cargill and other projects that you'll have in the future. But, you know, having a team that can come together and help a farmer uh, think through the planning stage, I think that's critical to making it work. So. Well, and the other partner that we're bringing on board now, of course, is the lending institutions. Uh, many farmers go to the field with borrowed money, borrowed capital, and that's uh, that's just the way it works. And they need to feel comfortable with that transition process as well, because their money is uh, at risk or they feel it might be at risk. So having consultancies and long-term contracts in hand really uh, helps them feel more comfortable with the process and then feel more inclined to... Uh, to do some lending. Yeah, because today's comfort level is driven by crop insurance. That's and right. And when we go through transition organic, that crop insurance completely changes. So it does. Well, very, very good. I appreciate your time today, Jeff. And uh, I, I celebrate all the fantastic things that you and your entire team are doing there. Uh, I think it's a, a look to the future of agriculture and, and uh, it's science-based and I think it has an imp- uh, a potential to really impact positively, not only on farmers, but the communities that we live in and the people that eat our food. They're going to eat high quality, nutrient dense food. Well, yeah, yeah I that's think that's, that's really, that's, that's really a great way to end it is that it's, it's all about the people who consume the food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want them to be healthy. Uh, we know that uh, if you just think about it from a logical perspective, if what we're using is ag chemicals to produce food and then pharmaceuticals to try to keep people healthy on the back end, that's just not uh, a, a real strong future. The old, the old saying that got you coming and going. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, it, and it's unfortunate. Uh, and we need to get uh, the medical community on board and we're working on that here at the Institute. And, and we're, we're finding a lot of support in the functional medicine side where people say diet is really important. We, you know, we're discovering some really interesting things. I, I know we're running out of time or probably have run out of time, but uh, I would challenge your listeners to um, use their internet browser and look up the word ergothionine. Uh, many people never heard of ergothionine, but ergothionine is a, an amino acid that is formed in the soil by soil funguses. Certain mushrooms do it as well. But what we're finding is that there is about 50% less ergothionine in our diets today than there was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And ergothionine apparently helps our bodies fight off some neurological diseases like attention deficit disorder, uh, autism, and Alzheimer's. And what do we see rising in our, in our country, uh, mm-hmm. those levels? Some of it's detection, we understand that. But some of it is just more and more people struggling with these neurological disorders. And here is a case where the soil is enabling our bodies to um, mitigate that. And we're inadvertently, uh, with side effects from all of our ag practices, uh, killing off the very funguses. Uh, Nobody intentionally does that, but it happens. And those funguses are actually trying to help keep us alive. So that's why I say the microbiology of the soil is really the future of agriculture. And the more we can get involved with that, uh, the more exciting it becomes. Yeah, unintended consequences um, 
rear their ugly head over a long period of time. They just, you know, you don't see, we're really good at detecting the, um, acute symptoms, you know, um, or toxic symptoms so that the chronic uh, type things are, are just very tough to diagnose. And uh, it happens on a regular basis when we think we're smarter than the, than, than the created system. And um, it comes back to get us. So, well, they do, they build up even in our bodies over time. And sometimes people don't recognize uh, uh, what happened to your, in your sixties or seventies, you go, Oh, it's too late to change it, but it's an accumulated effect. And so uh, we're beginning on the medical side and on the soil science side to understand those connections more. And that, that's a powerful story. So I think the future is incredibly bright for agriculture. It's incredibly bright for, uh, for the planet and for human health. Um, yeah. I know some folks think we're all going to get in a rocket ship and go to another planet. Uh, screw that one up too. No. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I would. I, I mean, I, I don't know much about your family, but I'm pretty sure the Moyers are far too poor to be selected to go on those. You know, they're not going to take uh, nine billion people with them. And so we're going to be left behind here to, to deal with what we got. And we're going to try to improve it. And that's uh, I, I think all farmers want to do that, improve the health of their soil. And a final note is if you are one of the listeners that heard the ergothionine and you're Googling it to see if you can get a supplement, you've missed the context of our talk today. So (laughs) the whole key is that when we create a robust living system, we are going to get these auxiliary benefits and secondary metabolites, amino acids that are only produced within the soil microbiome. And we're going to get that into our our gut and brain and connection and, and uh, get things repaired and restored. So it's exciting. Yeah. We have, we we have not figured out how to make it in a test tube. So we're just in the, in we're the just in the tip of the iceberg of, of learning how we used to do things was there was a good, good reason for doing it that way. So yeah, so we just took a hundred year to... detour. <laughs> well, and we have to bring, well, uh, we don't want to leave modern science behind when we move, uh, when we recapture some of those uh, important yeah. attributes of the past, we want to modernize them with, mm-hmm. with robotics, with ag engineering, with all of the, uh, the, the great uh, strides that have been made in equipment manufacturing and uh, um and that was really the whole purpose of why we started Ag Emerge was to bring these concepts of ag technology and apply them to regenerative agriculture instead of applying them to a few more bushels in conventional. So I think it's a way to meld the technology with the ways of how we did. We got a new corn planter here at Rodale Institute last year and it's got some Dawn equipment on it and we're using it with our Rodale primper. And when we bought it, our farm manager said to me, how do you set this thing up. I said, I don't know, there must be a computer on it somewhere. And we were looking all over for the computer and we called the manufacturer and he said, this is your computer. He said, it's your telephone. You, you set everything with a, with your smartphone. So once we downloaded the app, we, we changed the planter from the driver's seat with our, with cell phone technology. Of course, we're going to use that in organic. That's just, that's just smart business. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, the best way to establish, you know, what farmers who do grow corn want to see that picket fence corn where every corn plant is precision planted. Uh, that's what we're going to do. So we're not moving away from that. We're embracing that technology. We're just doing it in a way that doesn't lose fact, lose sight of the fact that the soil is here to keep us healthy and we need to keep the soil healthy to do that. Well said. Appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you for your time today and uh, keep, keep the mission going strong and, and look to visit again in the future. We hope, we hope to do that. I appreciate the time with you and with your listeners and uh, wish you all uh, a, a great growing season. Excellent. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Well, how fun was that? I think if we've learned one thing from having all these great guests on, it's the concept of keep learning, keep collaborating. And as we like to say here, keep doing the next right thing. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.